This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Daniel, we just had, like, my mind is blown here. Wow. Lisa Trumbull, president and CEO of SOHO Health. That was just such an incredible, insightful, and amazing conversation on all things value-based care. I think of what Governor Levitt has said about we have three options in value-based care. You know, we can fight it and die, accept it and have it a fighting chance or lead it and prosper. And Lisa is one that I see as being a leader. And if anyone's going to win in this game of value, it's going to be SOHO Health under the leadership of Lisa Trumbull. I definitely agree with that, Eric. She's an incredible person and, and so much fun to interview. It's just amazing the timing from when she came over and started with SOHO Health. This is a, a new ACO that began in January. If you think about that timing with COVID, what a great way to start a new opportunity as a CEO. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this, Daniel. Everything we touched on in our conversation with Lisa from IDNs and physician organizations and physician comp models, accountable care, payer contracting, she is just such a wealth of information. So let's go ahead and hand it over to Lisa as she tells us about SOHO Health and their race to value. Well, Lisa, we're so glad to have you. And as we've gotten to know each other over the last little while, as you've been a member with the ACLC, I've been really impressed with your background and experience. But I was really intrigued by the timing of you leaving Cambridge Health Alliance and coming over to Soho. And then all of a sudden, bam, COVID happens. And that has to have turned your world quite upside down and changed your expectations significantly, I imagine. Dan, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be able to talk to you today about the work we're doing and certainly my background. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head with who could pick starting a new job as a CEO for a newly formed organization and you know, six weeks in, be in the middle of a pandemic. I think I could write a book now on, on how to survive a pandemic and starting a new job. It, it was an interesting way to learn the organization. I would say that it was probably one of the better ways to learn the organization because you got to see 
the strengths and the weaknesses right up front in the middle of the pandemic, from the fragility of our primary care practices to the strength of our hospital affiliates uh, clinically. And then we we pivoted our own role as an organization to be one that served as the information portal and the connection to supplies and PPE and, you know, any clinical information that was needed to negotiating with all of our payers, telehealth and implementing telehealth in our practices. So it was a, a very interesting situation to go through. Not I'm not saying it's anything I'd like to go through again, but definitely was an interesting way to learn the organization. Well, Lisa, you certainly started there with Soho at this important inflection point. And we like to think here that hopefully that COVID can be this silver lining that we need in the industry to really accelerate the transition to health value. And I think this inflection point is going to happen towards value because we have so many things that are working together in the macro environment. You have large employers that are under immense pressure to find ways to lower costs and offer competitive benefits. They're tired of having their payment in the healthcare system being offered as a subsidy for public pay. You have doctors themselves who are being crushed by the current environment who feel that they've been marginalized in a fee-for-service environment. And now we're seeing that fee-for-service is not really a good business model in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) And then you have... um, That's right. Yeah. And then you have just federal and state governments really feeling this insurmountable amount of pressure. So I'm just thinking about this inflection point. And I want to reflect on this a little bit with you. So, I mean, how does a health system pivot? You know, especially if you've had a history of some of our listeners today maybe thinking, you know, I'm I'm an executive in a in a health system and we're kind of a high cost provider in certain areas. And if if what happens in the industry truly happens where we we end up being more focused on value. And I see a shift in all my high margin procedures like total knees, total hips, spine, cardiology, and all that. How do I, as a healthcare executive, lead a cultural transformation towards value? So I wanted to ask you now, as you're the new leader of the Southern New England Healthcare Organization, SOHO Health, what are you doing to prepare the organization for this inevitable shift to health value? I think it's a really interesting question. I do believe that we are at this inflection point. Uh, We're hearing it daily with our employers in our market and our payer colleagues, as well as our local state governments, that healthcare expenditures are no longer affordable. And we've seen the fragility of how fee-for-service reacts in the in throes of a pandemic, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it exposed all of the weaknesses that occur and all the fragmentation that exists within fee-for-service healthcare delivery environment. And I think what was interesting for me starting this new role, coming from Massachusetts, where we went through a significant period of transformation and a series of expectations that providers in the marketplace would begin to take on value and alternative payment models and risks so that they would consider transforming their business from fee-for-service to that of value. Coming into Connecticut, it was like a, a completely different world. And you know, we share a state border but there's very little sharing of the value principles in the state of Connecticut with the providers and to a certain extent with some of the payer partners that we have in the market. So what attracted me to Soho is that the organization is affiliated with Trinity Health of New England, who very much is interested in making this pivot and has invested a lot of time and effort to do that and time and effort in partnering with their providers 
in the marketplace to make it happen through a vehicle called SOHO, which is a clinically integrated network that's 50% owned by Trinity Health in New England, 50% owned by the providers that are our members. And we're at 1,500 providers right now. We'll be at 1,700 providers by the end of the calendar year. And I would say to healthcare executives that are still sitting on their fee-for-service chassis to buckle up and look out because your next series of conversations are going to be very challenging. Negotiating increases in fee-for-service are not going to be something that's tolerated. At least we're hearing that in our marketplace. And you can expect that employers are going to be looking to do something very different. And in some cases, like what's happening in Connecticut, employers are actually looking for alternative ways to achieve getting health care for their employees, if that means cutting the payer out and going direct to uh, providers. So we're in several conversations right now to do direct to employer contracting as a way to offer ourselves directly to employers in a more cost-effective way. And I think health system executives need to look at how do I partner with my physicians and how do I create value together with my physicians in a way that allows their organizations to survive in this environment. It probably won't be at the same level, but keeps our physicians engaged and connected to our organization. And I think that may involve conversations around joint ventures for centers of excellence and for bundles of services, because in the market we're in right now, we're talking about all of those those various configurations that can be done. Lisa, I love the background you've given on SOHO and helping us understand what that organization is and what you guys are working on. And you've touched on a number of things that we're going to ask a little bit more in-depth questions on. And I'd like to start with this one that's about the current system, the fee-for-service system that inherently disadvantages hospitals who might shift to value, where where they have to contend with demand destruction of their fee-for-service lines of business. It'll reduce admissions. It'll reduce emergency department visits and procedures, the majority of savings that come about from value are really coming from keeping patients out of hospital doors. It seems like a CIN needs to focus on increasing its market share then and focus on preventing leakage from the system in order to combat these potential losses. If given this dichotomy faced by the health system balancing risk-based payment with fee-for-service, what's been your experience with this? How can a health system effectively execute a value agenda? How are you communicating and prioritizing a value agenda, even despite these challenges? It's a really good question, and it's an interesting situation to face. I think the hospital systems need to begin to look at what are the core businesses that I need to be in and need to be able to survive in, and how do I reduce my infrastructure costs to make that core business have a margin that's survivable, for lack of a better word, and recognize that there is going to be, if if this is done right in what I've done in the past in my previous organizations and previous roles is reduced utilization, unnecessary overuse and misuse of healthcare services that results in more fee-for-service payments. As that happens, you commented on a couple of these earlier where hospital systems and integrated delivery systems need to then focus on, I need more lives. I need better coverage to make sure that I capture every ounce of the services that are delivered to those lives so that it's not going to my competitors, it's not leaking out, so that I can sustain this model long term. And at the same time, if you're not looking at your infrastructure, then you are setting yourselves up for problems in the future. Because if if the market does pivot to a value-based approach pretty rapidly, 
that transformation could happen quicker than you're able to change your infrastructure. So you need to be proactive and look at the, the infrastructure changes. The other thing too is Although services will be reduced, utilization will be reduced for inpatient services, there are other places where it's growing. You know, ambulatory surgery is still going to continue to grow as the baby boomers age. And you can develop a reasonable model with your physicians to partner on ambulatory surgery centers, depending on the state you're in and how the rules actually govern that. But models where you're sharing on bundles with your physicians, and that creates aligns incentives for the work to be done the right way on the right patients and in the right facilities and the right setting so that all parties benefit. And I think you need to be creative. If you're really fixed on inpatient admissions as as your only surviving point for uh, your infrastructure, then you really will have challenges as this begins to pivot. And as employers begin to look for alternatives uh, because they no longer wanna pay for that surgery that could be done in an ambulatory setting at half the price in a hospital facility setting. They don't want to pay for unnecessary hospitalizations. You know, they don't want to have their employees go through multiple readmissions because your system's not paying attention to discharge planning and the follow-up care that's necessary. So it is a difficult situation to be in because at the same time that you're losing business, you're, you're also asked to transform and make investments in areas that you haven't historically had to make investments. But if, if you don't do those things, look at your infrastructure costs, expect that you're going to see these decreases and make the necessary investments, create the necessary relationships that, that you need, then you will, will slowly work your way out of the market and being competitive because others will do that around you. The market will find a way to figure it out with others. Now, you've been leading integrated delivery systems for quite some time, Lisa. I think we're seeing that there's so many more health systems in the U.S., providing clinically integrated care for patients than there were, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago. And, you know, often what gets the attention is the big mergers and acquisition, functional integration that takes place there. But I think what really matters and what would be of most interest for our listeners today is really hearing about how CINs can result in better value for patients. And it seems like clinical integration is one of the most important and greatest challenges of our industry. I mean, I think back to an article I read in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it said the average Medicare patient has a, a median of two PCPs and five specialist physicians that manage their care. And that's just the median. So, I mean, if we think about, if we have 75% of healthcare expenditures that are consumed in the care of chronic conditions and the care for these individuals, it's real fragmented and across multiple providers and specialties across the continuum. It seems that clinical integration could be the answer and really provide the foundation for health value and really enhance communication and, and all of that. So I wanted to ask you in your career, how have you seen CINs leading in the transition to value-based payment by improving care coordination, quality, efficiency, and so forth? And then where do clinically integrated networks fit in the maze of ACOs and PCMHs and PHOs and IPAs and all of that? It's an interesting situation to be in. I have been fortunate enough to be in healthcare now for 30 years, and I've lived through the heyday of you know managed care with the kind of air quotes around the terminology uh, to then see it wane and then come back into existence and be you know repurposed and called something else. And similar to have been the variations of the type of configurations between healthcare systems, hospitals, and physicians you know, the different forms that they can take, whether they're PHOs or IPAs or, you know, now ACOs and now CINs. 
I think they all are struggling to answer the same question around integration. What's the best way to integrate? And I think it starts with what's the philosophy of the organization? If you believe that hospitals and providers and patients need to be working together in order to solve the healthcare problems and their healthcare needs, then I think a clinically integrated network is the best answer for that. If you believe that the healthcare needs can be solved almost entirely by an independent physician association, then, you know, it's a philosophy, right? I just don't think it gets you entirely where you need to be because you do need partner hospitals, you do need partnerships in other ways, and it can't be done by one segment of the healthcare industry. It has to be a combination of the various participants in the healthcare industry. The beauty of the design of a clinically integrated network and the use of the terminology is that it isn't limiting you to any one area of healthcare delivery. Clinically integrated networks can partner between hospitals and physicians, but also community-based organizations, post-acute organizations, visiting nursing associations, any other participant in the patient's care, including the, the patient themselves. I see clinically integration as the answer to being able to perform well in a value-based environment. In our organization at SOHO, we feel that it's so important that we've created a particular venue to specifically focus on clinical integration. And we've we've populated it with the various participants in our, our network and outside of our network to help us design the way, the way to deliver care, the way to integrate care. And in some cases, it may mean that something that's currently being performed in a hospital may be better off performed at home or in a different setting. It may mean that at some point, the primary care is the lead provider, but for other conditions, it may be the cardiologist, it may be the nephrologist. It it allows us to have those conversations together in a multidisciplinary way with all the right participants that matter to delivering the appropriate level of healthcare to the patients that we serve. I love that explanation, Lisa. You really portray well the concept that it takes a village to make value-based care work. And that's a strong, compelling argument. The CINs are a really effective way to do that. And, And you've talked about the partnerships that enable you to have these joint decisions, these activities, working together on care pathways, treating the patient kind of as a a whole person uh, rather than siloed treatment and as oftentimes the case outside of clinically integrated networks. We touched on it a little earlier. You started talking about another one of these really important partners that needs to be at the table, and that's the employers. So I want to explore the employer relationship and partnerships a little bit further. You know, we know payers have tried for years to develop methods of care management or disease management, sometimes with limited results. Employers, though, particularly self-insured, as you mentioned, they're looking to do things differently in regards to their healthcare spending. You've talked a little bit about how a clinically integrated network can be the basis for this for providers and hospitals to develop ways to work more closely with those employers. Can you tell us and tell our listeners how your ACO approaches these partnerships with employers and how that collaboration leads to best practices for value-based care? What are those best practices you're seeing and what is Soho Health doing in collaboration with the payer community and, and large employers? I would say the employer market and the direct-to-employer work is in a very nascent stage in, in Connecticut, but the way we're approaching this We've gone a couple different directions. We've gone literally directly talking to employers in a marketplace that we know are having challenges or have reached out to us 
we've also used our a broker advisory group to help inform where there are some of these challenges and where there are opportunities for us to actually do better, even with our insured partners. The best way, I think, to start is to understand that as a clinically integrated network, we don't have all the capabilities we need today to go direct to an employer and do everything that's necessary. But we know it's important for us to start to do this work. So we're looking for, currently we're looking for an intermediary to operate as a you know, third-party administrator that'll offer some of the other benefits that you see in a traditional employer-insurer relationship that we don't have the infrastructure for at this point. And we're leveraging that type of a relationship to be the intermediary between us and the employers while we're offering our clinical services. The best thing that I've seen come from the discussions with employers and with third-party administrators is the fact that they're energized about the ability to talk directly to providers about what they want, about what they want to give their employees, about the willingness they are to change their benefit design to make it happen. Uh, They're seeing such pressure on the economics in an unsustainable way that they're now willing to talk about, well, as an employee, you may not be able to go everywhere you want to go, but this is the only way we can afford to provide you the health insurance at a reasonable cost for you. And we've done the due diligence to pick the high-performing networks that are working together with us to address your issues. So we're talking about different programs that can be put in place. And you mentioned earlier in your comments about what our payer partners have often done in terms of developing chronic disease programs and pathways or ways to kind of intervene and manage conditions. You know, the challenge with that approach is you're talking about a portion of the healthcare system that is not actually delivering care today. You know, they're not inserted in the, de- in the delivery of care in a way that is natural. And as a result, it's harder to manage patients in those pathways or chronic disease programs, which is why they often don't generate the results that are expected or they fail because they're trying to coordinate as an outside participant in the delivery of healthcare. If you're looking at programs like that, that are successful, they're the ones that partner with the patient, partner with the provider, and and jointly arrive at decisions around how care is delivered, even if that's a a chronic condition program. And that's what employers are looking for. They know they have employees with musculoskeletal conditions. What do you got that will address my employees that have back pain, that are constantly getting MRIs? What what are you gonna do with my employees that are, are diabetic? They have the same concerns and questions that we have as a clinically integrated network in terms of trying to manage the population, So why not get engaged in a conversation with an employer around what you can do, what you can offer, and how to co-develop it over time? I think that that type of an approach works better than coming in with, here's who we are, here's what we can do, and we're going to deliver the traditional hospital physician services. If that's the answer, then it's probably not something they're interested in at this point because they've already dealt with that in a variety of different ways. Lisa, I want to ask you more about there might be a potential dichotomy here and within a clinically integrated network. I'm curious, uh, you know, we talked earlier about balancing fee for service and and value, and that's that's one dichotomy. But what about the creation of these, what you would call maybe like, you know, Michael Porter from Harvard calls it an integrated practice unit. And I think Regina Herzlinger in the 90s, in her book, Managed Healthcare, called these focus factories. And then in the 80s, we called it centers of excellence. But really, the 
core of it is to transform an organization towards value, you have to organize around care delivery. And that seems to require a shift in an organization where really everyone's focused on in the totality of treatment within around a patient's medical condition. So, you know, using the, the terminology from Michael Porter, this integrated practice unit, you're treating not only the disease, but also the related conditions, complications, circumstances that commonly occur with it, such as kidney and eye disorders for patients with diabetes, palliative care for metastatic cancer, and so on. So I really want to know in your organization, what are you doing to create these integrated practice units? And then does that at all detract from the development of a clinically integrated network that tries to, to treat all types of medical conditions and patients across the continuum? I'm, I'm really interested in kind of how, how that's balanced in you know, delivering cost-effective care and high-value care within the CIN? I think it's actually a very interesting question because being in Connecticut, we have every configuration of what you just, just expressed occurring. And I, I, guess, I guess my thinking on this has evolved a little bit. Originally, I thought, geez, you know, these are all very, they're competing priorities within a traditional alternative payment model where you contract and you're at risk for a population of patients and, and all the conditions within you know, that population, that they're, they're conflicting mechanisms that are just designed to peel away, you know, additional funds. And that can, that can be true if you're not paying attention to it. But I do think that if, if we're looking to improve healthcare outcomes and improve value, it's really hard to walk away from proven evidence of more standardization and more utilization or performance of procedures by providers produces better outcomes. And, you know, I was shocked by, I'm going to give you a statistic that I heard kind of off the cuff uh, recently here in Connecticut, when we were talking about episodes of care and centers of excellence and how they can be leveraged differently, and that 18% of the hysterectomies in Connecticut have complications. And those complications cause extraordinary costs, increases in extraordinary ways, increases the costs of hysterectomies in an extraordinary way in the marketplace. And, you know, that's compared to 3% in Massachusetts. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, when you're sitting in a marketplace with such highly valued systems, why would we have complication rates like that? And, there, you know, there are other conditions. I'm just picking that one just as an example. So the idea of having centers of excellence, if we're going to focus on delivering value, which is you know, better patient experience and increased quality, better health outcomes and reduced disparities and reduced costs, then it's going to be really hard to do that in every setting, everywhere, with every potential option available, particularly in the latter phase of being at risk for the business. You know, in the earlier phases, when you're at risk, you can probably afford all that variation. It's not a problem. But as your budgets reduce and as your costs reduce over time, it gets harder and harder to really eke out the value of those financial arrangements. And I think it forces you to think about, can I do this differently? And the options are centers of excellence that deliver on the outcomes that we're, we're all talking about. Here in Connecticut, we're talking about centers of excellence, networks of distinction, bundled payments. I, I think I'm right now evaluating 30 different bundle arrangements to be working on with the state of Connecticut employee health plan. And there's real value to talking about doing that and doing it the right way, but particularly if you're really interested in the outcome value-based care is intended to produce. The gymnastics that we have to go through to make that work 
or how do you make it work in the context of the contractual arrangements in the historical contracting methodology that have existed with alternative payment models? And that adds a different layer of complexity. And then I would say the one last benefit when you talk about aligning incentives in a traditional model of, you know, we're going to con contract for this entire population, most clinically integrated networks, ACOs, IPAs, you know, tend to reward primary care providers the most and, you know, a little bit for behavioral health specialists and, and some or nothing for specialists in general in these models. So often specialists are disengaged. And in the earlier days of your models, that's okay to have disengaged specialists. But as you really start to get better at this and reducing costs, you need very engaged specialists. And the way to get specialists engaged is around things like bundles and centers of excellence, where you have the opportunity to talk to them about how they're delivering care and, and to look at the outcomes together and say, can we do better? And if we do better, we all do better. The patient does better, the hospital system does better, the specialist does better, and the economic and the quality all work out in a way that we intend. And I know it sounds a little like pie in the sky because it's very complicated, but if, if you don't have a mechanism for engaging specialists in this, then long-term success in the model is not guaranteed. I'm really glad you went this direction, Lisa. I was thinking exactly of this while you were speaking about the centers of excellence. And a lot of organizations really struggle with how to incentivize providers or align incentives with providers and how much of the shared savings, for example, do they distribute to their provider networks? And a lot of them are taking what you said, this focus on primary care initially and have no idea what to do with a specialist. And I love the description and, and the advice that you give that as they become more mature in this, the specialists definitely need to be accounted for. And you mentioned your role with Cambridge Health Alliance. And so I'm thinking about your experience there in the state of Massachusetts, which has been forward thinking as far as health value for a while now. And, and Cambridge Health Alliance was a, one of the leaders in that state with value. And so you come with a lot of experience in this, obviously, and a great addition to Soho Health with this background. I'm curious the advice you have for how you approach incentivizing providers, if you can elaborate on that a little bit further. What are your conversations like right now? How are you aligning incentives for your providers now at Soho? The incentive alignment discussion is, I'd like to say I really enjoy them. Sometimes it can be really painful. I'd say if you've seen one incentive system, you've seen only one incentive system. There's, I don't think there's any one way to develop incentives. I think it's highly variable and dependent on the type of organization you are and the type of providers and configuration of providers that you have. And, and I've gone through all facets of incentivizing through my career because I used to manage physician compensation models uh, when I was a CFO of a large group practice. So the adage of you know, be careful what you incent because you might actually get it is very true. What I have seen work is it's going to be very hard to account for every particular circumstance that may occur when caring for a patient. But there are key levers that are important to overall success in managing an alternative payment contract, and that's quality. Quality is going to become more and more important in making sure that you're able to produce the outcomes and quality and understanding where the direction of the business and how to manage the direction of the business and how you document your patient's illness, burden, social determinant burden. All of that's really important to being able to describe 
the population and the outcomes that are generated, and then consequently the financial results. So often I've implemented models where a few quality metrics are used to measure primary care performance. We're measuring our ability to document, and I'm not saying in a non-compliant way because it really is the most important thing to do is to document exactly what's happening with your patients and the conditions that they have because it expresses the illness burden that they're carrying. And it also communicates to the rest of the team, some of which now in clinically integrated networks are no longer in your four walls. So it's really important that they understand the complexity of the populations that they're managing. So documentation is important. And then the flow of patients to use the right providers, I think is the hardest thing in the world to manage. We all would like to say that we can control our leakage, that we can manage you know, where patients go, but ultimately, patients make decisions based on the urgency of their healthcare needs. So it's important that you have a stopgap in an emergency room or an urgent care center relationship that can help manage the patient to the right setting. It's really hard to impact patient choice when a patient has five family members telling them where to go. And the only way to actually impact that relationship is to ha have the provider have the conversation around what's right for the patient and then to direct them to the right place for the delivery of their health care. On the specialist side, I think it's more challenging because there aren't a lot of, when you look at the traditional models, there aren't a lot of quality metrics that really hit home with the specialists that are entirely driven by specialist behavior. But we know that specialist behavior impacts quality outcomes. So participation and communication and collaboration with primary care becomes very important and is often an opportunity for creating some incentives. Creating, I started early on with projects for specialists because there was no, bundles weren't things that we thought of at that point in time, but projects around, can you help me develop a chronic disease pathway for COPD or for CHF? And if you help me develop that and we manage the process of when they should be taken care of in primary care versus when they could be taken care of in specialty care, then you probably will end up with a better outcome overall. So the incentive question is very challenging, but it's absolutely necessary if you don't cross the bridge of trying to align incentives between the providers and particularly primary care and specialty and, of course, the hospital system, then you won't get the outcomes that you really need. So I, I would say that maybe that's maybe a mixed message on incentive alignment. But if you feel like you're doing something wrong, you're probably actually doing something right because nope, if you have a pretty decent model, you won't have ultimately happy people everywhere. There will be some dissatisfaction that there will be measurement. Your payment may be moderated based on your performance. You know, Lisa, I feel like you and I can just geek out on physician comp models for like half a day. I mean, I, this is a, a topic that's definitely of interest for me. And I can tell you've done a lot of work in this area. You know, I wanted to ask you just in terms of getting provider engagement in the CIN and on your risk contracts. And when you design comp models, do you also include a, a measure for, for good citizenship within the ACO? I could see situations where you may have a provider that hits the mark on quality and their, their cost and utilization is contributing to the shared savings and they have a burden of illness that's reflected in, in, you know, in their practice, but they just don't show up to meetings and they don't really, they're not a good steward of value-based care in terms of the organizational culture. How do you work with providers just to make sure that you account for some of those intangibles? The engagement question is really challenging and the citizenship question, I have some interesting thoughts on that too, but particularly after COVID, right? After, after this, you can't even say after because we're still in the midst of it, 
after our event earlier this year, trying to get physician engagement in a clinically integrated network was very challenging because the majority of physicians were, were worried about just trying to stand up their practice and whether their practice could survive this event. But engagement is so critical to the success of the organization. And it's important to have the right level of physician engagement, particularly when you're talking about clinical integration or clinical design incentive parameters. You want physicians at the table talking about that. You want them leading it. You want them selling it to the physicians in your network. I'm fortunate that both recent jobs, I've had very engaged physicians in the process, and I have physician leaders that have been willing to do the boots on the ground talking to providers to get providers interested in committee participation or in attendance at anything just to provide input. And I I think that's necessary. You need physician leaders. I need physician leaders in my organization to be able to engage physicians in the process. In terms of citizenship and how to reward that engagement, I've struggled a bit with this at times because I've gone from models where we've paid for them to show up to a meeting and we've paid for them to do a a project or we've paid for them to do something that would lead a committee or whatever. And that doesn't really, it works okay for the initial phases, but over time it becomes a bigger administrative burden just trying to track 1,700 docs and whether they had they attended something. And even when they attended, the question was, were they really there and did they participate? And so I've moved from, I want engaged providers, but I want good citizens and I want minimum performance to be a standard. So we're talking in our organization about minimum performance expectations. And when we started talking about minimum performance expectations, all of a sudden people's ears started perking up. Well, I kind of want to participate where that decision is going to be made. And, you know, I want to talk about that or I want to participate on on that group to, you know, talk about how we're going to come up with a better clinical design for end-stage renal disease. You know, when we start talking about minimum participation, then you have the ability to get people engaged in areas that they want to be engaged in rather than forcing them to be engaged in pod meetings, as an example. I kind of expect my medical leaders to have pod meetings and certainly review performance information because it's a way to communicate the information. And then I expect them to hold practices accountable for their performance. But at the end of the day, we could do all that work. And if you've got three or four providers in one practice that just aren't cutting it and aren't meeting the minimum performance expectations and are dragging the whole practice down, that's a very different conversation to have. And over time, we, Soho as a network, we're going to have to have difficult conversations around whether providers like that belong in our network. If we're striving to deliver high quality, high value care, we need everybody interested in wanting to do that and do the right thing. And for those that are disinterested, maybe they don't belong in our network. Maybe they belong somewhere else. Maybe it's not the right thing for them. But, you know, this this expectation of care delivery is going to change. The consumer is going to make us change. The employers are certainly trying to make us change. And our governmental agencies are going to want to make us change very quickly after they push the, the total button on the investments they've made in, in healthcare recently just due to the pandemic. I think it's incumbent upon us to really understand what's important and understand where measurement has value and where it doesn't add value, particularly when you're talking about very busy clinical individuals, such as our providers that are in our network. And that includes nurse practitioners and physician assistants and every other variation of provider you can think of that now comprises a clinically integrated network. 
You know, Lisa, you made a comment earlier that got me thinking, and so I can't help but ask. I really love your perspective on continuing the incentive discussion, incentivizing the right thing, the right behaviors for providers and and providing the care that ultimately I think they want to be able to give. And so if, if we align incentives with the values of providers and why they went into medicine, two things kind of stick out in my mind. And this is where it was a comment that you made earlier about providers having conversations. And two important pieces of these conversations that providers need to have stick out in my mind. And they are shared decision-making and transitions of care. And both of these are conversations that maybe aren't necessarily natural and there needs to be training on. I mean, we as people have difficulty having conversations with each other all the time with those that we're really close to. And so when when we get in clinical relationships, when there's diseases at play, when there's emotions at play, things become even more difficult. But the providers ultimately want to care for the patient. They have these values that they hold dear. And two of these conversations that have been difficult in the past are helping patients, sharing in decisions, thinking about what's important to them and incorporating their values and preferences. And then secondly, having conversations with each other and communicating the right information for transitions of care. Interested in your perspective on this and what part they play in your incentive programs? Yeah, these are two very important topics. The shared decision-making with with patients, I think, is critical. If you're not understanding the values and beliefs of the patients that you're serving, then you probably are doing them a disservice in the way that you're delivering care to them. You're you're bringing in implicit bias, maybe even explicit bias into your decision-making, and that can have adverse outcomes to the patients that you're serving. So I think it's very, very important to have the type of relationship with patients that focuses on their beliefs and their values and, you know, looks at them holistically for their care. I think it's also the hardest thing in the world to reward, right? How do you understand whether someone's doing that or not? And I guess at the end of the day, I think the the providers that are really embracing shared decision-making and, you know, co-producing outcomes with their patients are going to have the better outcomes right? They're going to have the populations that are interested in, in being cared for by them. And they'll over time have a more successful track record. So I, I think that it ends up showing up in the outcomes more than it could be ever be rewarded. Now, transitions of care is an interesting topic to try to consider rewarding or you know, understanding where there are potential levers for making them occur better. And I don't know that a transition of care scenario is necessarily attributed to any one particular provider, because at that point, there have probably been so many that have been involved, right, that the measuring the transition of care becomes problematic and who's, who's really responsible for a failed transition of care with a particular patient is something that is probably not identifiable. So I, I think the, the best thing that could happen in this area is that there's clarity depending on where they're coming from and where they're going to, you know, what they came with and what they're leaving with and having open communication with the rest of the team. This is why being clinically integrated matters because all of a sudden recognize that you have a broader team that you have to communicate with. There's a broader team that's actually asking you about all of these things. There's probably someone going to the home and looking in their medicine cabinet to recognize that they 
have prescriptions that are contraindicated to the ones that you just gave them. And so it's really important to have the communication be there, being open and available to communicate to various participants on the team is is critical in any transition. It's critical in just the delivery of care. Measuring transitions of care, bad transitions of care typically result in more readmissions or bad outcomes when a patient's at home. And again, going to the outcomes of the bad outcomes or the types of outcomes that we don't want to see when we're managing care like readmissions is probably the better way to measure whether there's been successful transitions of care or successful communication or coordination. I want to ask you, Lisa, about what we're seeing in the industry right now as we're transitioning the value. I mean, there's great success stories. You've been a part of those in, in your experience, but then there's a lot of ACOs that just aren't generating savings right now, especially when you consider all the investments that they're making in IT and care management. I mean, they might even be losing money as an organization. Sometimes when we speak to our members, we might hear like, yeah, we're actually debating whether or not we stay in the Medicare shared savings program, you know, once we have to make a decision there. So as health systems are now looking to employ more physicians and have more community-based sites of service, and you're going to have maybe a proliferation of ASCs and clinics, There, obviously there's going to be shifting of patients and procedures being done in an ambulatory setting. But in a fee-for-service environment, that could definitely have a direct impact on your top and bottom line. And, you know, I'm just curious how capital allocation decisions are made. I mean, you have board members that have maybe the fiduciary responsibility in a fee-for-service world to make certain decisions. But then, you know, in this new world now that we're embracing and we have to think with a population health imperative, I mean, how do we make those key investments and programs and staffing and technology and clinical interventions to improve outcomes where a return on that investment may be a little bit more elusive and longer term. So can you describe how your organization prioritizes investments to build operational and care coordination infrastructure to support integrated care and improved health outcomes? And then how do you balance the need for reinvesting savings back into the risk-bearing entity? And ultimately, how do you balance the need to put money in the hands of the physicians versus maybe reinvesting it back into the company? How do you kind of navigate those balances and make those capital allocation decisions? Now, there is the conundrum, right? I think if you talk to any clinically integrated network or ACO or maybe a physician hospital organization, you're going to hear that this is a a daily struggle for them, how to fund the work. It's unfortunate that we're in this situation where there's an expectation on the healthcare delivery system to self-transform itself, right? You figure out how to transform yourself in an environment where you have costs that are increasing, reimbursements that are declining, and now you have this new kind of mandate where you have to fund a transformation to value, which is something you hadn't anticipated needing to do. Never mind if you're a physician and you're operating on next to no margins in a physician practice, yet you need to be a member of a clinically integrated network and you, you know you need that relationship because you need the network in order to survive and to you know, help with your contracting and manage populations. But how do you then fund that when you are worried about your payroll day to day? And these are these are real struggles. They're challenges that we're dealing with at Soho, particularly after the after the pandemic. It was one of the challenges that was most acute during the pandemic. How do we maintain our operations when you know our providers and our hospitals income streams are being decimated because of this virus? And so I would say 
in that regard, there are mechanisms and ways to have the conversation with different bodies around funding the infrastructure. I think the payer community needs to step up. I, I'm just appalled when I see new headlines coming out every day in terms of how many billions of dollars that our payer partners are making, and yet they're the most reluctant ones to step up and assist in the midst of a crisis when it's really needed. But you can't make this transition to value without talking about the dollar and talking about how much of the dollar the payer community is taking. And if you're transforming a provider healthcare system or clinically integrated network to take on more risk and assume more responsibility, then more of the dollar needs to be shared in that direction. And if you have unwilling payers to have that conversation, I'd say they're not your long-term partners. And, and those are the kind of conversations we're having in our market today. We're going to make decisions on who our partners are. We offer value as a network. No, understand what your value proposition is. I know our network produces great quality. I know our costs are good. So we're desirable. We're desirable to a number of payers in the market. But we're only going to partner with those that are really going to have the conversation with us around how to do this better and that aren't afraid of actually shifting the dollar and recognizing that that's what they're going to have to do over time as the responsibilities shift. Now, something that you said earlier in, in your opening statement on the question here, the discussion around long-term survivability of these models, I think, is a very real discussion. The, the budget-based risk model was not intended to be a long-term strategy. It's, in fact, a race to the bottom. You know, as you do better and better, your budgets get cut. And we felt that really acutely at Cambridge Health Alliance in the Medicaid program because we had been managing the Medicaid population for years before the state kicked off its approach to Medicaid ACOs. So it disadvantaged us in the economics early on. And that's what happens over time as you spend years in the same model with the same population. So it's not surprising to me that there are Medicare shared savings participants that are talking about whether this is worth doing because you can't continue to invest if you can't earn anything off the model. It's predictable, right? You know, your, your performance improves, your targets get lowered, your everything gets lowered and you have to do better and better. And at some point you can't do better without major transformation in the marketplace or a major shift in the way healthcare is delivered because you can't, you can only impact so much. So the budget-based model, I don't think, is anything worth staying in beyond, you know, beyond a seven-year time period. Ten years maybe tops uh, in any particular agreement. I'm not saying make a ten-year agreement. I'm just saying you know, in repeated renegotiations, it's probably not worth it beyond that time period. It, it is, however, a transition to something different. As you're maturing in your value-based approach and as you're building your infrastructure and your capabilities over time, you're building the, the ability to manage a broader level of risk. And so you need to be talking about things like payer partnerships and co-branding a product, actually taking on capitation and then moving from capitation to you know, insurance or premium-based risk. And you know, that requires, in some cases, a partnership with a payer that's interested in doing it. In some cases, health systems have done it on their own. That's the pathway to the, the ultimate management of the dollar. The budget-based approach is, is not a long-term survivable model, in my opinion. Lisa, you, you've been talking and sharing with us about some of the infrastructure that needs to be developed to be able to succeed in, in value. And one of the benefits, I think, of a CIN is 
above the clinical efficiencies that we've talked about and the administrative tasks that, that can be um, distributed and, and removed from the provider owner model. One of the great benefits is, I think, a sharing of technology, an enterprise level technology infrastructure. We know that providers are frustrated when they have different EHRs and, and sharing of information and interoperability is challenging. There's difficulty with the demands that EHRs place on making things sometimes more administrative. But overall, I think a CIN balances that and helps with improving the communication between provider organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about Soho? Do most of the providers in your CIN utilize the same enterprise electronic health record? And for any independents out there using other platforms, how do you deliver a longitudinal patient record to them? It's a great question. Now, just to refresh your memory, Soho was formerly St. Francis Healthcare Partners. We had about a thousand providers. It was largely based in the Hartford market, affiliated with St. Francis Medical Center. And we regionalized as of January 1st. We're now up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and all the way down south to Waterbury in Connecticut. And with that regionalization, we brought on 700 additional providers. Uh, but we also brought on the historical structures of those organizations. So I'd love to say that while we're all on one EHR, we're not. And it's a problem uh, because it fragments the communication and the care and, quite honestly, it increases our costs for managing the work uh, because of the fragmentation of the EHRs. Now, with that said, it's not horrible. We have about 75% of our providers are on one EHR which is great, and, and that goes a long way to our ability to manage the population. And we're an Epic client, so we're using Epic. So for those particular providers, the longitudinal care and communication is, is seamless because our care managers and, and our population health teams all document in Epic and share the notes of their work with the rest of the care team. For the rest of our networks, we're doing something similar in terms of transferring notes and transitioning notes. Uh, we have a variety of EHRs. We have uh, too many other EHRs for the other 25% of our members. And we, over time, need to weed that down to something that's more manageable. It's unlikely that we'll ever get to one. But, you know, if we could get to a handful, you know, maybe four tops, we can better manage that communication and the necessary information that goes, you know, beyond just uh, communication. It's getting the data for quality, screening data as we start to implement screening for social determinants of health. You know, all of that needs to be communicated and shared so that the whole team can appreciate what's happening with our patient populations. So every day I'm challenged with something new in this area and, and there's a new widget or something coming out that is going to make my life easier. And I have, found, have not found one single answer to this problem. And I know we're not the only network that struggles with it because you're, you're dealing with a fragmented system and uh, individual little micro businesses that have made historical decisions that need time to actually be navigated and eventually modified were appropriate. So I wish I could say that the perfect thing to do is to have everybody on a, the same EHR across the entire system, and that's the right answer. I, I believe that helps. I, I just don't think it's the only answer to achieving that result, and it's probably unaffordable in the long run for a network to attempt to do that. I know particularly with Epic, it's, it's a challenging cost perspective, but being in a clinically integrated network, it'll, it does allow us to offer it to our providers 
and to offer telehealth solutions. And we offer other business solutions to our providers as, as part of their relationship with us that, you know, group purchasing options so that we can increase the value of being a Soho member. You can purchase your supplies through our group, group purchasing contracts or get medical malpractice at lower rates through our captive around medical malpractice. So, you know, there's other ways to achieve a value proposition. And I unfortunately think the technology piece has been the most challenging to demonstrate value or ROI on, to answer your last question. The, the ROI is an in, somewhat invisible ROI. Right. You, if you develop an ROI for putting a new CAT scan in a hospital, you can estimate what the return on that ROI is going to be. And you can see the return occurring if you're managing it correctly. You can see it occurring on a daily basis or in a, a value based environment. If you're going to make a multimillion dollar investment, the return is in a downstream question mark of whether you earn a surplus or shared savings. But if you don't make the investment, then your likelihood of earning it is is less. So it, it's a catch-22, you know, chicken and egg situation. If you don't make the investments, you don't make the returns. And if your returns are often very late, 18 to 24 months down the road, that people lose sight of, well, the reason I made that return is maybe because I made this investment in an EHR. Well, I don't know. How do you prove that out? How do you know that that investment was at what actually delivered your return? Because you're doing so many things at the same time. You're managing patients. You're managing the care. You put in telehealth. You're doing an EHR. You put in a medical economics package. You've got apps all over the place to manage patients. You, you clinically designed everything. Well, what exactly out of all that is generating the return? It probably isn't any one thing. It's probably the constellation of all things that are generating the return. So they're all necessary in order to be able to do the work in the way that we're envisioning it. I'd love to hear more about telehealth, Lisa. You know, I, I think back to this recent survey from the Deloitte Center for, for Health Solutions and the American Telemedicine Association came out a few months ago, and they said at least a quarter of all outpatient care, preventative care, long-term care is going to be moved to virtual delivery by 2040. And that was without factoring COVID-19. So we could obviously expect like maybe, you know, that that's going to be uh, 25% by next year, maybe, or more. But I wanted to ask you, so how has SOHO Health adjusted its population health management model with the current pandemic? I mean, you spoke a lot about the electronic health records and the challenges in creating an enterprise level system, but telehealth is going to really be a crucial enabler of patient care in the future. And, you know, what are you doing to shift to those demands in the marketplace to deliver care more in a virtualized setting? And what are you doing to get the most of your CIN providers to engage patients on a telemedicine platform? And then are there any other apps or technologies also that you're looking to leverage in patient engagement to deliver care outside of the more conventional setting? I, you know, I think the telehealth situation is so interesting to look at. It, you know, everybody was struggling to implement telehealth for some of the reasons that we just talked about. You know, how do you fund it, right? And how do you convert providers to it when the payment mechanism, which is still a, a largely a fee-for-service chassis, doesn't reward it? Well, you know, it doesn't go anywhere, right? Which is what happened. You, you had some traction of telehealth and it was starting to pick up. And, and I understand why they were saying 25% by 2040. Well, <laughs> the reasons are right in front of us as to why it didn't happen. And it's unfortunate that we needed a pandemic to prove it, right? So the pandemic happens and the only way you can deliver care is through a telehealth vehicle and providers were forced to do it. So the conversion to it happened like unbelievably quick, like overnight, overnight providers were using telehealth. 
and then the questions around long-term sustainability came into play. How's this going to, how am I going to get paid? Am I going to get paid an office visit rate? Am I, is it, you know, is it going to be less than an office visit rate? If it's less than an office visit rate, then how can I maintain it? Because I have my own infrastructure. Well, you, you can't say to providers, we want you to do this, but we want you to take a 50% cut on this because it's not going to, it won't work because they'll look at it as a loss. They can't possibly see any more patients and they won't survive in their practice. So, you know, the answers to some of these questions are, you know, well, maybe we need a capitated model so that then it's a little bit easier to talk about how to do these things. And you have more uptake on some of these initiatives a little bit quicker because they're interested in and trying to manage the population in a different way. For Soho, we, we experienced it just in the way I described, like overnight, we were talking to our providers about telehealth solutions. We were evaluating multiple telehealth products to, to put in front of our providers. And fortunately, we are in a clinically integrated network that has Trinity Health in New England, who had already embarked on some of these telehealth solutions. And very quickly, we had options around contracting for it, and we were able to expand it and and push it out to our providers in a way. And some had already made different decisions by, by the time we actually got all that done. So now the question is, will it is it sustainable long term, right? And how will they maintain the same percentage of telehealth visits? And I think what we'll see, and we're starting to see it, it's starting to dwindle off, right? And I think it's going to depend on the age of the population you're caring for. We're starting to see, you know, our seniors wanting to come back into the office and, you know, the telehealth thing isn't is something necessarily that they want to maintain long-term, but it's okay. So maybe they won't be using it in the same way they've used it over the last couple of months. And yet our younger population is loving the fact that they don't have to drive in and, and go into an office to see someone and they want to continue to have the telehealth visits. So we're converting our organization to be more a virtual as much as possible and where it makes sense and to leverage the in-person office time to for those patients that really need to be in the office and for our care management and population health managers the uh, telehealth platform is being used to care manage our populations until we can get to a point where we can have more personal interfacing with them the last thing to to say about this, other technologies, certainly texting technology uh, we're using. And, you know, I know there are a variety of other apps out there for digital health and other digital strategies that I'm a little more skeptical about. Their long-term viability, the cost of, of implementing them and the use of them in patients' homes. But, you know, we're experimenting with those technologies also. We're also looking at methods of creating a virtual home ICU as a way to manage more complex acute patients that can be managed at home in a safe way with all the right capabilities around them and the ability to manage them virtually or allow them virtual access, particularly if they have fragile conditions that we know can result in increased emergency room visits and the like. So I, I would say that type of tool is, is something that we're, we're strongly evaluating. Lisa, all the things we've been talking about, and, and this one as well, the telehealth aspect, all of these are things that require different skill sets and mindsets that then have been in traditional healthcare for the, you know, the past 10, 20 years. At the ACLC, we really believe that effective healthcare and value in healthcare begins and ends with the competency of the team. When I looked at your role at SOHO and the team, 
that had been built to manage the population and to, to staff the ACO. I was really impressed by the bench you guys had. And obviously, you know, some thoughtful investment and planning into building that bench of people. And, and there are a lot more people involved than, than what's listed necessarily on the website as those staff. But educating and reskilling the workforce to be able to deliver value is an important competency that your organization needs to have. And so I'm curious about the approach that you're taking to make sure that your employees have the competencies that they need to thrive in a value-based care environment. And follow-up question to that is how can the ACLC support your efforts to guide knowledge and skill development? I think the the best way to develop the skills is to give people the opportunity to to actually be in a situation where they have to be used. There are a lot of very smart people in the healthcare industry, and let's just take nursing as an example, right? Nursing is a very valuable skill set to have in a clinically integrated network because our some of our care managers are actually nurses, some are licensed social workers. So the the training and the pivoting of a nurse from an acute care environment to clinically integrated network environment, while it is different, the provision of care and the things that they would normally do in evaluating a patient, assessing a patient, and how they would consider treating a patient are very similar and the communications are very similar. It's just they're dealing with different connection points, right? They may not be dealing with a hospital-based team in the traditional sense, but they may be dealing with a post-acute team and certainly hospital case managers and providers in a hospital and, and community-based organizations. So the training is a very interesting question. And uh, I think that there is a lack of training of that skill set in, in the areas that I just described. There aren't formal training programs for this work. Take community health workers as an example. Uh, in Massachusetts, when we went live with the Medicaid ACO, community health workers were nowhere to be found. We had a few. We Cambridge had a training department that developed community health workers because we had a very robust community health improvement program. So we had certified community health workers, but that skill set didn't exist broadly in the state of Massachusetts. It, it took some investment by the state in the development of the Medicaid program to put in training programs to train people to be community health workers because you can't just pick someone off the street and just make them a community health worker and it's all going to work. It, it requires a, a specific level of skill and, and training to, to have a really good community health worker. I think areas like community health workers, behavioral health is a, a big area of training and need, behavioral health integration, how to do it, what to do, what's the best way to do it. Patient-centered medical homes, is it really worth it to invest in, in being a patient certified patient-centered medical home? Or is it really better to take the principles of patient-centered medical home and deploy them in your practice and use them because they have the ability to generate value? They, they put in, in practice things that are necessary, like team-based communication. So why not develop tools for training people on how to be patient-centered medical home-like? without having to go through the process of actually being certified and then maintain the certification, which is onerous and costly, and, and most practices can't afford it. The other area that I think needs additional training is the area of medical economics and data science. You know, we are seeing all sorts of artificial intelligence and medical economics programs, and the clinically integrated network looks to information differently. We're not a hospital, so we have traditional people that have done analytics in a hospital setting, and then we have traditional people that have done analytics in a payer setting, but there isn't a broad range of people 
that have looked at it in a clinically integrated network setting, right? Where you're you're looking at certainly the payer information plus local provider-based information from hospitals and physicians and quality data. And you're looking at all of that in a different way uh, to understand what's happening with the population. There isn't any real formal education around that. I know that there are programs and things being developed, but it's it's not something that is trained traditionally in healthcare. And a lot of times you can't just pick someone from one environment and put them in this role and have it work. I've had the unfortunate circumstance of picking someone that ran a payer-based medical economics program and, and brought them into a role and had them fail miserably because they couldn't understand how the information was lacking on the provider side and and how to use limited information on the provider side. So I think there are opportunities for workforce development in that area. And I think the ACLC has an opportunity. You understand and have relationships with a lot of people who have expertise in in these areas and can develop training modules or tools that would be useful to those that are interested in going this direction or those that are, are interested in filling positions but don't have someone necessarily that has exactly the right skill set to fit the role, but you need to develop them and train them. And you personally don't, as the leader, don't have time to do that. Are there training modules that can be developed to help? You won't train, be able to train everything, but at least the basics of data management, data science, medical economics, what it, what it means to have to be a community health worker, what it means to be a complex care manager or, or intensive clinical advisor or a BH specialist in in a clinically integrated network. And then I would say lastly, physicians need training and physician leaders in particular need training in this area, how to manage physician relationships and how to work with non-physicians and how to work in a team-based environment that is not a clinical setting where you know there's automatically kind of authority given to the physician because of their background and their training. Having some level of opportunities for physicians to learn leadership skills for this new environment of delivering on value. So Lisa, as the top executive of one of the leading CINs in the country, you really have a unique perspective about the future of hospitals. So I have one last question for you today, and I want you to take out your crystal ball here. As care becomes more virtualized and procedures shift more and more to the ambulatory setting, and you know, I could see the hospital of the future really being asset light. In that model, you might focus more on providing higher level care and you know emergency medical and surgical care, but the capacity is going to be weighted towards more intensive patient management. And the acute facility is going to have more connection with expanded ambulatory resources like you know outpatient surgery, post-acute care services, home care, all enabled by remote monitoring and so forth. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, in this advent of clinical integration with more emphasis on ambulatory care and consumerism, how will the role of the hospital change when it really is no longer the pinnacle of care, but instead a provider on the continuum with everything else? I think that is exactly the the most interesting question because I, I think it could happen pretty quickly when you look at how technology is advancing and uh, how the virtual care space is advancing. I could see this happen in a way that is shocking to people in terms of how quickly a hospital environment may need to transition. Now, you know, every area of the country is going to be a little bit different and the transitions could be slowed depending on the marketplaces that they're in. 
But I do, I do see over time exactly what you just described. There's no way to avoid it. The technology is going to drive it. Our providers are going to drive it. Our, the consumers and patients are going to drive it in a way to bring it to the lowest cost setting, the most flexible setting that's available for the patient. And that's not typically the acute care environment, right? It's, it's not the most convenient. It's not the most flexible. It's a very rigid model of, of care delivery and is probably better suited for, as you said, the most acute, most intensive level of care. And it could very quickly be minimized compared to some of the hospital structures that we see today. And we're always going to need hospitals, and we're always going to need that level of care. But we're not always going to need a hospital, as we see today, for a knee replacement, right? We're not always going to need a hospital for certain other types of surgeries. It's going to transform over time. When they're talking about physicians being able to provide surgery remotely, not even from the same physical location as as our patient, then you really have to think, like, okay, well, how could this change not only for just for just for hospitals, for physicians in a way that could be incredibly challenging to manage. So I, I do see, you know, what's the, the, you said crystal ball, and it really is a crystal ball. I wish I could say the time period I would expect it to occur in. I think it's sooner than most of us would want it to be and sooner than most of us would predict it to be, particularly after having lived through a bit of a pandemic, right? The people saw that care could be delivered virtually. Maybe the outcomes weren't necessarily the best either because people also avoided care. And as clinically integrated networks and value begin to to pick up and transform marketplaces, it's going to transform the use of these technologies in a faster pace than, than what traditionally happened in a fee-for-service environment. So I, I think that you know, the, the hospital very much has the ability to become, instead of the, the behemoth that actually owns the entire structure of how healthcare is delivered, to being basically a vendor in a lot of these relationships over time. And I, I think that that's a very scary proposition for a lot of hospital leaders as they look at the value proposition, which is part of the reason why early on I made a couple comments in this regard that you really should be looking at your infrastructure, look at ways to pivot your fixed costs, uh, look at ways to partner with your physicians now to create some stickiness and to produce care in a lower cost setting. Do that now before it actually is done to you by the marketplace and by the value-based approaches of others around you. Lisa Trumbull, President and CEO of Soho Health, thank you so much for joining us today on the Race to Value podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I enjoy having the conversation with you and, and hopefully can do it again in the future. Thank you for having me.